so we're jumping back to some older texts that we've already worked through, but now we're going back and seeing something else in them. So that's what today is about, Christmas time. Okay, if Christmas is about anything theologically, and you know that there is so much rich theology weaved through the, the story of Christmas, the texts of Christmas, but if it's about anything theologically, it's about God's promises. All of the first two-thirds of your Bible in the, in the law that's given, in the prophets who are speaking, in the writers who are writing, all through, over and over and over again, God declares by His Spirit, I promise, I promise a Savior, a Redeemer, a king, a suffering servant, a Christ, a Messiah is coming to save, to ransom, to atone, to win a people, not only for my glory, but for their infinite and delirious joy. This promise appears all throughout the older covenant. God makes and he keeps that promise. That's what Christmas is about, theologically. Okay, now if Christmas is about anything practically, like boots to the ground practically, it is about, excuse me, I have my gum in there still. It is about, here we go, it is about kids. It's about our children. How many people just have some vivid, awesome, great memories of being a kid at Christmas time? That's like a happy place for most of us, right? Those memories. I mean, in this few short weeks, finally, for some inexplicable reason when you're a kid, the whole world suddenly bends to your will. You're actually writing things that you want down on a list, and then you get them. That never happens all year long. People are force-feeding you what all of a sudden? cookies and hot chocolate and candy canes, you, they cancel school for like two weeks. As a kid, you're like, what is going on? Whoever Jesus is, I'm in on this because I get to stay up wicked late on Christmas Eve and everything. If you walked into our house right now, the entrance from the living room to the dining room, all of the Christmas cards that we've been getting are, are tied and stapled up there. And 99% of the time, except in the cases when you have narcissistic and myopic grown-ups who want to get in the pictures too, I'm just kidding for some of you who sent us pictures that have you and your kids. We don't do that anymore. Maybe when you're 40, you go, yeah, let's keep that face off the Christmas card. 99% of the time, who is in all of those pictures up and down our wall? It's our kids. Yes. What is that about? think whether we're Christians or not, whether we realize it or not, during Christmas time, our hearts race to celebrate one of the greatest gifts that God gives to us, which is our sons and our daughters, our nieces and our nephews. It's our children. Okay, so practically, Christmas is about the kids. You know that. In my time with you this morning, what I want to do is to bring these two Christmas time realities together like this and remind you or maybe tell you for the very first time, if you've never heard and realized this, that in the gospel, 
these two realities, God's promise and our children, they are married. That God the Father intends for His gospel grace to run from Him through us who He saved and to our children. Let me read that passage again to you from Acts and we'll pray and we'll get into this. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. All right, let's pray. Father, if you don't give us alert minds and soft hearts, these words will just bounce. They will not be beautiful or true to us. We've heard a zillion messages this week from our TVs, from our peers, from our computers, and some sick amount of them are lies, God. And so today I pray that you would break through with just some clear, simple, beautiful gospel truth that we might breathe as your people, loved by you and receiving from you. And I pray that this truth would lead to uh, literally thousands of men and women reveling in the grace of Jesus Christ in the years and decades and millennia to come. Would you hear my prayer for that and answer? Amen. Okay, let's start here. One of the axioms that floats around in American evangelical church culture is this one right here. God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Okay, when you read that statement up on this screen, do you immediately think, that's true? Or do you immediately think, that's false. When you read that, does your head and your heart go, yes, that's right? Or does your head and your heart go, no, 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 that's not right? Ooh, fire. Smell it burning. Think that through. We're going to come back to that at the end of this. I want to start by talking with you through the older covenant very quickly. By that, I mean the life of God's people before Christmas before Jesus Christ, we can say this, that God intends for his covenantal grace to run downstream from one generation to the next in the older covenant is unmistakable. It's, it's unavoidable. It's unmissable. I could parade up here for you dozens of texts to prove that point. We could look at dozens of lives like Noah, Abraham, Jacob. We could look at the giving of the law in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. <clears throat> we could read the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and others. Over and over and over again, we would hear the same thing. My steadfast love runs not only to my people, but to their children and their children's children, down a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This idea was embedded in the life of the older covenant people of God. And one of the clear ways we see it is that they would sing about it. 
When you sing about something, it's got your heart, right? Not just your mind, but it's got your heart that you would sing about it. These are the words in Psalm 103. This is what God's people would sing, knowing who God was. The steadfast love, I'll say it, I won't sing it. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. Okay, every older covenant saint believed and went for this with their children. God has given grace to us, and God intends to continue on downstream to my kids and to their kids. They thought this way. They instructed this way. They worked this way. They prayed this way. They sang this way in the deepest part of an older covenant saint's soul. There was this assurance that the Lord's gracious promise is for me and my children. Okay, that was two-thirds of your Bible in three minutes. That's where they are. Now, our question is, what about the new covenant? What about the gospel era, which is the one that we live in? What about after Christmas, after Calvary, after the empty tomb, when God's gospel has finally and fully overrun the banks of national, ethnic, physical Israel, and now the whole world has been invited into this grace. Does this kind of language no longer carry over? Or, as gospel people, do we lean into these promises of God just as much as the saints of old? Okay, we're going to do a little what I call biblical CSI work. Does anybody still watch CSI? No, right? They keep putting it on, but you're like, would someone kill this show already? Because we get it. Okay, if you watch CSI back when it was new and interesting, you know that there's these 60-second scenes where the soundtrack comes up, whatever the hip new song is, and they are in the lab doing this hard work of digging through the evidence to try and solve the mystery for that hour. If you love your Bible, you get to do that with textual evidence. See if we can get a good grip on a good biblical theology of what God is revealing. So let's do some of that work together in the lab. Soundtrack, please. Are God's promises and our children held together in any way in the new covenant? Okay, let's start with Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel was an older covenant brother of ours, and he was a preacher of righteousness and of justice and of grace. But one of the things that he did is he also prophesied about the new covenant that was coming as beautiful as anyone, about the Christ who was coming and about the gospel that would arrive with this Christ. And here's what he says. He says to God's people, these are the words of the Lord. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. So right away, you know he's talking about the new covenant, not the old. The son of David, one shepherd, all of God's people. And they will walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And this is speaking toward us when our hearts are changed by God's grace and our lives are changed by God's grace. And we begin to live holy 
and holy and holy lives. They will dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. And in these older covenant prophecies, he's using the language of land, which will get expanded to become the new heavens and the new earth. And then Ezekiel says this right in the middle of that. He says, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, Jesus Christ, will be their prince forever. And I'll keep reading. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in the land, multiply them. I will put my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. So if Ezra was preaching with me, he would come over here and say, God said it and God did it and he's going to do it. But these are gospel promises. This is a gospel text. And who do we find right in the middle of it? We find children and children's children. Okay? Let's keep going. How about Mary? Mary is the literal physical bridge between the older covenant promises and the new covenant fulfillment, right? She's literally carrying the Christ inside of her womb. And Mary sings this song of celebration of what God is doing through her. And here's what she says in her song. Matt read it before to begin, and then she gets to the two-thirds of the way through. She says, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And then Mary says this, and this mercy, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This is a gospel song, you guys. And who is also right there in the middle of this song? It's generations. It's children. Notice how Mary uses this word. She, at least, doesn't believe that the Messiah that is about to be born of her is going to introduce some new approach to the generations of God's people. That's not what she's singing about. She is not singing as though God was somehow concerned with generational faithfulness in the older covenant, but now with this child that she's carrying... It's going to be every man and woman and child for themselves. She is filled with the Spirit, and she is insisting with us that the arrival of the gospel Messiah is a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his people and to their children, not the point at which he is going to abandon the next generation. That's Mary in a gospel song. Okay, one more. This is the text we're working through today from the book of Acts. This was the day that the church was born. This is when the gospel finally went boom and began to spread. Relentless advance of the gospel. That's this text. And Peter is preaching to Jerusalem Jews. These Jews have been thinking generationally for millennia, right? Back through Abraham. They've been thinking this way. And he gets up to preach to them. And he preaches to them, and this is what he says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Christ, your Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says this. We've read it together already. 
he says, for the promise, the gospel promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off from Jerusalem right now, everyone whom the Lord will call to himself. You go, wait, wait, wait. This is definitely a gospel text. This is the first gospel sermon. What are those children doing in there? Why didn't Peter just say, this promise is for you and for everyone who is far off, everyone who the Lord calls to himself? In the gospel, Peter says, this promise is for you and for your children. God intends for you and your children to get wrapped up, wrapped up in this gospel grace. He says it because this promise holds not just for us, but for our children. And this is exactly what we're going to see as we keep banging through the book of Acts together. God's blessing cascades down, not just on individuals, but on every household that is headed by those individuals. Now, we're going to preach these stories all individually when we get to them. But in Acts 11, the gospel comes to Cornelius. He's saved by grace through faith. And who else is in that text? Acts 11. You and your household. Acts 16, Lydia comes to receive the gospel. And who else is in that text? You don't got to go look for it. You can trust me. She and her household. Acts 16, the jailer has gospel grace preached to him and received by him. And who else is in that text? He and his household. Acts 19, 18, Crispus receives the gospel. And who else is in the text? He believed in the Lord with all his household. Okay, we could keep pranking through this. Awesome news, gospel people. Awesome news, potentially one day to be parents. Awesome news, right now are parents. Awesome news. God's promise concerning his gospel and the children of his children is as much a reality in the New Testament as it is in the Old. Okay, so what's our answer to this question about the validity of this statement? God has no grandchildren. I mess with you all the time like this, but here we go. The answer is, it depends. Okay, it depends what you mean by this statement. If you mean by this statement that it's really important for all of us to get that mere biological birth into a Christian home does not automatically robotically guarantee entrance into the grace of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, that's true. God doesn't do grandchildren in that automatic, robotic kind of way. And nobody in here is saying that he does. That would be a sinful and a silly presumption. Every single one of us has to believe the gospel for ourselves, on our own. And every one of our children needs to do that as well. 
In the older covenant, that was called being circumcised in heart and not just in the flesh. What was God getting at when when he revealed that truth to us? It's not enough to just be born into an Israelite home and be circumcised on the outside. Your heart needs to get there. In the new covenant, we talk about being born again or becoming a new creation. That has to happen. And I think that's where this phrase comes from, right? It is a correction to presumptuous theology and the nominal practice that it could birth. So I get it, but my point today is that if by this you mean that in the new covenant, in the gospel, God no longer intends for our kids to love him too, for our kids to know him too, for our kids to believe in him too, for our kids to have their sins atoned for too, to find life in his name too, that the promise of the gospel runs one generation deep and then just stops right there, the answer is no way. The God of the gospel has lots of grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren and five greats and six greats down to a thousand generations of those who love him and fear him and keep his commands. Okay, one of the many beautiful conversations that I get invited to as a pastor, as a shepherd of this church, is member interviews, right? So we sit with someone who's like, Jesus has saved me, he's given me a love for him and for his people, I have to become a member of this body and start being a part of what's happening here. So one of the things that we do when we have that conversation is we say, hey, tell me your story of grace, tell me how God got you. Tell me how he saved you. How did he convince and convict and convert your heart to his son in the gospel? One of the most frequent and most precious ways that that question gets answered, the very first words coming out of people's lips is words like this. You ready? My parents. My dad. My mom. They love Jesus. They, they brought me to, to Jesus' church. They loved his gospel. They gave me the grammar of the gospel. And the Father used that to save me. So your Bible and these texts today go, of course he did. Of course he did. And that's not everybody's story. But for so many of us, so frequently, it is, and it should be beautiful to us. Okay, whenever I tell my grace story, right up at the beginning are these two sentences, and I like got them down pat now because we, we're always telling lifelines in our gospel communities, right? The first one is this. My dad was saved as a crazy hippie in Vietnam and baptized in the river right there, and my mom was raised as the daughter of in a a Puerto Rican Pentecostal family by a pastor dad who loved Jesus and his people. When I begin there, giving my testimony there, what am I giving testimony to? To the downstream grace of God. 
I am saying that, like Mary, the Lord is merciful to generations of those who love him and fear him. I am saying that, like Peter said, his promise is for you and for your children. And, and it is a delight to live that before God. Okay, so that is all beautiful, important, biblical theology that I'd love for you to think on and get down in your soul and revel on if God invites you into the reality of fatherhood or motherhood. But there's about 15 questions that now inevitably pop up in people's minds when you start to get a hold of this doctrine and this biblical theology. I just want to work with one of them today. We can talk through the others later. One that comes up for every good American Bostonian is this. How does it work? So if you're like an American Bostonian, you love the practicals, right, baby? Come on, give me the flow chart. I want the seven steps so I can follow that thing and get there. But here's the problem. It doesn't work that way. This is not like buying an Ikea bookshelf. You get out that Swedish map, is it Swedish? And you just follow that from A to Z and you have, a, if it's you, a great beautiful bookshelf. If it's me, something that you snapped in half and threw out because you couldn't build it right. That's not, there's not a manual for how this works. That's not how this works. Um, there is mystery. There is tension in how God accomplishes this work. And my call as a faithful pastor who loves you is not to try and remove that mystery. It's not to try and remove that tension, but to teach you to embrace it and to live well within it. Okay, let me give you an illustration. On Wednesday night, our pastor shared a meal at Mystic Station on Pleasant Street in Malden. Okay, do you know what a gastropub is? I just found out what that was. I guess I, I may even have it wrong, so I won't even try to define it. But it was a gastropub, which seemed to me to mean the beer was important and the food wasn't, and I didn't drink beer and I ate, and so it was not a good culinary night for me. We're hanging out there with our pastor team and with the patronellers who are prayerfully thinking of coming up and planting a church with us in the next two or three years. And as a part of talking through a lot of things, Justin uh, smiled, and he began to threaten Clint's life about coming here and messing with the, the unity that our executive pastor team has. And he was trying to convey to him how important and how precious that brotherhood, that, that unified thing that we have is. And here's how he stated it to Clint. It was just perfect. He said to him, Clint, God granted it, and we worked for it. God granted it, and we worked for it. Okay. Now, you hear that, and if you're not good with mystery and tension, what do you want to say? You want to go, time out, right? Time out, time out. Which is it here? Did God grant it or did you work for it? What's the answer? It's all somewhere wrapped up in there. There is grace from God, primary, necessary, 
But there is also the kind of faith that reaches for that grace and the kind of faith that responds to that grace with energy and with effort. And then somewhere in the middle of all of God's gracing and our believing and our working, there is blessing. And there's no way to break those out in steps and figure that thing out. Instead, what you do is you go, I'm in. I'm going to give myself to all of this. And you've got grace, and you've got faith, and you've got your works, and you've got your repentance, and you've got your study, and you've got your extending forgiveness, and you've got your hustling, and your believing, and over days, and months, and years, and sometimes decades, at the end of all of this, you find yourself with kids who love Jesus, who have received his grace, who believe in him, and who follow him. That is the mystery that we are all invited into. Okay, so I can't map out the seven steps for you. If anyone wanted them, it would be me. Trust me. But what I can do is preach this good, sound doctrine and biblical theology to you, and then call you to say, embracing the tension and the mystery, I'm going to believe and I'm going to give myself to this. Let me finish with the three words that have been helpful to me as a pastor to you, as an observer of some of you older saints that Jesus has given me, and as a discipler of our kids. I'll give you these three words, and hopefully they help and sum this up for you. Okay, so the first one is confidence. I want to just like shoot confidence into your souls this morning. Uh, Is there anything more terrifying than becoming a mother or a father? People ask me what my emotions were when Grace and I found out that she was with child for the first time. We were in our hallway, our first apartment. It was Beachmont in Revere. It was her grandmother's apartment for 40 years, so there was tile throughout, throughout. And we were in the hallway with the wired phone on the, on the thing. I don't know if we were taking a phone call, but I remember the blue, yellow, and white tile And I remember that contraption that turns a certain color if you're actually pregnant. Is it supposed to be blue? Blue is no. Green? What is it? (laughs) Terrible. Blue. Pink. Whatever the color is that shows up and you know you're pregnant, I remember it showing up. So I tell people that my emotions from that hallway was like 60 seconds of delirium and joy and then nine months of absolute terror and fear. Oh, no. This punk is going to become a father. I remember thinking an eternal soul has been sparked in her womb. Who is sufficient to steward that? You would be totally overwhelmed by this task if not for the grace of God and the promise of God. You got to take hold of this by faith. You just have to. Let your confidence be anchored in the text of Scripture and respond to the Father by saying, I'm in, I'm taking you at your word, and I'm believing that you are going to be for these sons and these daughters. That's where this begins, and we get to rest right there. Confidence. Okay, now the second word, and again, here comes the mystery and the tension, is urgency. 
Rest does not mean feet up watching the pats. Rest does not mean presume upon the grace of God. Rest does not mean that this piece of your soul that God intends to do what you can't do means that you don't put your shoulders to the plow and do what he has called you to do. I mean, knowing that the gospel promise is for you and for your children should have your heart be like, so I got to tell these kids about the gospel promise, about Jesus, about who God is and who they are and what he's done to bridge that gap. And not just instruction, but I need to model this before them. I need to confess my sin and ask for forgiveness. I need to be with Jesus' people on Jesus' day to worship him. I need to love my neighbors. The Bible needs to be open. I need to submit to my elders. The gospel-centered life should be so beautiful and so attractive and so real in my life that my kids grow up saying, I wouldn't want to do anything but follow Jesus. There is no such thing as believing the promises of God but not hustling to join him in his fulfillment of those promises. We say it like this, faith without works is what? It's dead. It's not real faith. It's the same thing here. God grants it. We work for it. He meets us there, and he blesses us. This is why we teach our kids downstairs. This is why I memorize their names and pray for them. And I lose my breath laying my hands on them every single Sunday. What are we doing in all of this? We're saying, Father, we believe that these kids are yours, and we're going to work and pray and believe to that end. So there's confidence, but there's urgency. And then last word is this one, patience, patience. I mean, is there any harder culture for us? a child of a believer, to be born in and to grow up thinking Jesus is real and alive and beautiful and worth my life than this one. Okay, decidedly secular, secular culture, disdaining categories of sin and grace, technology to the point of distraction where we can go through days, weeks, years without dealing with the realities of heaven and hell and of our soul and of our sin. Every friend that they'll have, most of the professors that they'll have, telling them, Jesus, are you kidding me? To take a miracle of God for these kids to be ferociously holy, gospel-believing kids. This is a hard task that is before us, and we have to be patient in leading them there. Um, I need us to feel that. There's going to be some hard patches in the next 10 to 20 years in the life of our church with these kids. God did not promise sinless kids whose life story is going to be that perfect 45-degree angle on the chart. You know that line? What's it going to look more like? It's going to look more like this right here, right? Pause. That's what it's going to look like. That's what it's looked like for you, right? I'm not the only one who didn't move in a straight line to Jesus' grace. Now, some of these kids will get it at a young age and just, we had a nine-year-old get busted for leading a Bible study on the playground at school. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. We need to be patient and dig in and say, Father, we believe you. We're going to work hard 
This isn't our timetable. This is yours. We're going to stick with the promise of God and loving of our children. And we know that whatever the twists and turns are, at the end, there will be faith. There will be joy. There will be life in Jesus. We believe it and we work for it. And so we're patient, especially in the hard and the dark days. I was on the phone this week with a friend of mine. He's in a hard time personally for himself. Okay, lost his job, had to move from where he was living. He's living apart from his three teenage kids right now. He cannot find work. It's difficult. And toward the end of our conversation, he just said the most perfect thing I needed to hear to preach this to you today, to encourage my soul. He's like, Matt, that's all going on. But can I tell you something? My kids love God. He said, my kids love God. My kids love God. Whatever else is going on in this crazy, hard, difficult, identity-punishing season of my unemployment, God has been faithful that in my home there is joy, there is life, there is peace. My kids love God. My faith for you, uh, the Bible's declaration to you, my call to you is to rest in the promise of God that our kids, somehow, they're going to love God and his promise and his joy of Christmas and the sending of the Christ. It's going to click in their hearts and we will see a generation who just love him and serve him and fear him. All right, let's pray for that together. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that from beginning to end, from beginning to end, from beginning to end, you just want to shout at us, hey, hey, I love you, and I intend for that love to get down to your kids and their kids. My grace is for you, my gospel. This promise of the forgiveness of sins is for you. Take it and teach it and watch it explode in the souls of your kids. You receive immense glory there. I mean, if this gospel promise is really true, Father, and you meet us in our working and our praying and our hustling by your grace, just this room becomes three or four or five times more souls forgiven, delirious in the grace of God, reveling with us in the new heaven and the new earth forever. I don't want to miss out on taking hold of that promise. I don't want to get to your heaven and go, oh, I didn't believe for, for generations. So we're going to give ourselves to it. Jesus, that means we need you to meet us there in your power, in your saving grace. These kids must be born again. And I pray that one after the other we would watch it. Would you give us confidence? Would you give us urgency? Would you please give us patience? Because we're so slow to believe that the grace of Jesus Christ in Boston took root one generation to the next. Hear my prayer for these things and answer them. Don't miss them. Amen. Amen.